All right, um, we're in week four of Called Out. Um, we are in First Timothy chapter two. If you don't have a Bible, you can look underneath these rows, and there there are plenty of Bibles for you to go ahead and grab. Um, if you don't have a Bible, then take that one. If you have a Bible and want to give out a Bible, then take that one and give it out to someone. Um, we're going to be in First Timothy, which is in the New Testament. It's uh, in the letters of Paul. It's maybe towards the middle of the New Testament. Go ahead and grab that and open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, verse, uh, a couple confessions here. Um, this text is really full, um, really full. So I've been trying to figure it out, and I, I, I was in the beginning of the week thinking I was going to be able to do this in a week, and I just realized there's no, there's no way. So um, then I thought, all right, I can, I can do this, this text, these this seven verses in two weeks. Then I realized there's still no way. So this set of verses, verses 1, one through 7, are going to take me three whole weeks. Um, now, what I'm going to do here is this, just so you can understand where we're going. Verses 1 through 7, um, for the first two weeks, I'm going to do a two-part sermon on it. And it's going to be um, with a heavy, heavy emphasis on missions. So um, local and global missions. Now, that doesn't mean that outside of these weeks that I won't do an emphasis on missions. If you've been here at all, I talk about being on mission every single week. Um, but these particular two weeks, we're going to uh, have a heavy emphasis on it. Um, and we'll end each sermon for this week and next week with a corporate prayer time, meaning that you're going to group off into two or three people um, and you're going to pray before we go into our worship set with some people here. Um, after that, uh, the third week is we're going to go into verse four and we're going to talk about what verse four means when it says God wills for all to be saved. And I'm going to dedicate an entire week to just that just that week so that everybody um, is kind of wondering, how do we answer this? What does this mean? If God wills all to be saved and they're not saved, does that mean that God's not sovereign? And we're going to answer that whole question, but we're not going to do that until week three. The first two weeks, though, I want to do um, local and global missions, um, just so we can have an understanding. Bless you. Um, anyway, we have, uh, we have a lot of uh, stats and, and, and figures, and there's going to be some challenge that I'm going to try to lay out for everyone um, over these next couple weeks. But... Um, as we're going into these statistics and as you hear lots of numbers and as you hear these people over here have this and we have this and here's where this state is and here's where we are, here's where the city is. Um, what I do, and I don't know if you do this, what I do when I hear numbers and stats, I just kind of like in, out, done. And I don't let them kind of soak in and really start thinking about what that means. And so as I try to give, and there'll be a lot, as I try to give these statistics and things like that, I don't want you to just kind of hear them and then let them kind of you know, get flushed down the toilet of your mind. I want you to actually let them sit there for a while and think about what we're trying to say and what what this means um, that that many people in this city or in this state <clears throat> are perishing outside of a relationship with Christ. And God has given us, the church, not us remedy, but us, the church in this city, um, a, a mandate that there's something that we need to do about it. So as we hear about that, um, I hope that you'll, you'll start thinking about what this means. Now, I don't know if you're like this, but this is something that I've noticed in my life. And I, I, I really, 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 really hate it whenever I'm like this. Um, I hate it with, with a huge passion. I used to do it all the time. I've noticed as I've gotten older that I've, I used to do this. I didn't even realize it because I was just so dreadfully sinful. Not that I, I'm not now. But um, as I've gotten older, I've looked back and I, I've seen that this is what I do. Um, and hopefully by God's grace, I'll stop doing it. Maybe you do this with me. Um, but, but maybe you don't, but I'm betting some of us do. What I used to do whenever I was younger is, um, I would enter into a relationship with someone. I would go and meet with them. I would go and do life with them. I would go and help them or serve them 
only if it was going to serve me, only if it was going to help me, only if it was going to move me forward in some way. Um, I wouldn't give people my time if they needed help. I would go help them if it's going to somehow in the end help me Um, or it it would look like this. They would call and ask for help and I'd say, yeah, I might do it. And then I would kind of wait for something better to happen or come along in my schedule. And if nothing on, on nothing at all would come forward that would look better, then I would say, all right. I guess I'll go do it. And I guess I'll go help them. It wasn't an immediate yes. It was, let me see if there's going to be any other possibilities of things I can do with people that are going to be more interesting than you, um, that's going to move me forward better. And then if that doesn't happen, then I'll consider helping you. That's, that's kind of how I operated. Um, but whenever I was young, and, and this isn't just a problem for the young, I think it's primarily a problem for the young, but there's old who are the same way, that are self-centered, that are selfish, um, that don't think, and even in these kind of categories, that maybe I'm just kind of waiting along for someone to kind of serve me, rather than just kind of serve people. But however, if we look at the scriptures, we don't see this to be the pattern of Jesus as he walked around. Um, he, would, he was going one day to help um, a man named Jer- Jairus um, to heal his daughter, and while he's on the way, another woman comes up and just kind of touches his garment. He turns around, he heals her first and then goes. He never ever was like, well, I've got other things that are more important to me right now. I'm not going to stop and help you. He always kept this pattern of pouring himself out. And if that's who Jesus was, then that should be our um, that should be our goal as we walk through this. And so my goal this morning is that we'll start thinking in those categories. We'll erase these categories of thought where we have to think, all right, I'm going to help people as long as it helps me. But we're going to say, I'm going to willingly sacrifice who I am and my time to help you, even if it doesn't help me at all. That's what we're going to talk about. So we're going to be looking at four specific ways that we can pray for local and global missions. Uh, we're going to we're going to put those both pieces together um, and, and try to move forward. Now, um, I have to confess that we started this church January 25th, 2009 was our launch day. So we're about nine months in and about and it's not till nine months in after kind of reading through this whole week and getting prepared for all this that I really started thinking our global missions piece of Remedy Church has been really lacking. Uh, we give some dollars. And we pray each week for a people group of the day. But other than that, we haven't really put much in there. And um, it's totally my fault. It's totally my fault. It's not your fault. Um, My thoughts were, we're a church plant. We need to get established. We need to get everything kind of going. And then once we have ourselves established, then we can add this huge piece, which is costly. It, It doesn't... It doesn't cost a little bit of money to do international missions. Um, and I thought, we'll get ourselves established, and then we'll add that, and then we'll keep going. Um, but I, I think, and I've been thinking about it, I need to confess that to y'all as a sin. That is a sin because um, instead of just when we start saying, um, I know that it's the mission of the church to serve local and global, and we should have started that in the beginning, um, and just trusted God to bring that big, huge financial piece and bring us forward. But I, I didn't do that. Um, and so this morning, um, we are now, I, without hesitation, going to add that to us. I'm not sure how it's going to work out. Um, but Remedy Church is going to start moving forward, adding this missions piece to our church in some way, which I'm not sure, with hopes and with a goal, Lord willing, that we'll have some kind of international missions trip um, planned for this summer so that you can have a place to serve even internationally. Now, there's plenty of opportunities. Now, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. 
Because I, th- I still think some of us are operating in those other categories where I'm going to serve if it's going to benefit me. Because there's local missions opportunities that at least half of you still haven't taken advantage of yet uh, where we go serve places. At least half of you. But um, I want to start adding as many pieces that we can so that you can serve. Now, I'm not trying to guilt you in this. I think this is the message of the Bible, that you're supposed to serve. Yes, you're supposed to pursue holiness. Yes, you're supposed to pursue knowledge and grow in your relationship with Christ and get rid of sin. However, um, if we're going to truly do what Jesus says, which is love our neighbor as ourself, which is the second greatest commandment, then we have to have this piece of missions in our in our um, church. So I'm going to kind of put all the cards on the table and it's going to be your decision now whether you're going to fold or you're going to get in the game and start playing. If you're going to join with us to help us start doing things locally and globally to carry out the message of Christ to everyone. Now, the reason why um, this is important um, locally and then we'll talk about globally. Um, I was invited to a uh, Baptist state level meeting a couple weeks ago. And as we were there, um, we we're talking about how we can start implementing church planning in South Carolina and, and so that we can have churches grow. And as we were there, we started dealing with and started looking at some of the statistics here in South Carolina. And so just so we can all get an accurate picture of just what's going on right here in the state, um, then we can start thinking internationally. Um, we looked at, at percentages And there's about um, 2,100. I'm just talking about Baptist churches right now, okay? There's about 2,100 Baptist churches in the state of South Carolina. Where you're like, well, if we're just talking Baptist, what does that really have to do with the whole state? Well, Baptist churches take up almost, if not over, two-thirds of the churches in South Carolina. Evangelical churches in South Carolina. So we're talking about a large portion of churches that just in this one state. There's about 2,100 churches. in South Carolina. And out of those, they report about 1,680 are plateaued or declining. 1,680 churches out of 2,100 are plateaued or declining, which means um, that somewhere in the neighborhood of 420 churches in our state, only 420 churches in our state are actually growing. The other 1,680 have either stopped growing or are now in a decline. All right, so... If we look at also the statistics, 634 churches in our state didn't baptize anyone. Just in our state did not baptize anyone. Now, um, that means that there's several churches that did baptize, but all you had to do is baptize one person and you're not in the 634. So multiple churches probably just baptized few. We, we baptized eight this year so far, and that's all. So um, lots of churches aren't growing now. If 420 churches are actually growing right now in the state, just 420, um, and we have a state population of 4.5 million people in this state, 4.5 million, only 420 churches are actually growing. 4.5 million people in the state. Um, And additionally, there's probably an estimate of somewhere around... um, Three million that are lost in our state. That's what they're saying. Um, some estimates will put it up to almost three million that are lost. And there's 20, or four, 20 to 40 churches in our state that are closing every year. Every year, 20 to 40 ch- churches are closing every year. Um, here's what it means. Out of the four, this is the perspective that I want you to get. Out of the actual 420 churches that are Baptist in our state that are growing, 
all of them have to reach each year 7,738 people each year. If we're going to actually try to make a dent in the lost people that are in South Carolina, every church, and that's only assuming that the growing churches can do it, Because 1,680 are plateaued or declining. Out of the 420, those 420 will have to grow per year for a while over 7,000 people. Now, I'm not thinking that we're going to grow 7,000 people in one year. If we reach 7,000 people, then that's absolutely amazing. However, um, I do think that we, as a church in Rock Hill, should take some accountability here. Um, I think that every church should, but we are going to, because we come to this church, we are going to take some responsibility. Now, if we're just kind of, here's our responsibility, here's our piece of the puzzle. Um, If we're just looking at our city, um, in the city of Rock Hill right now, there are 68,000 people in the city of Rock Hill, 68,000. So our goal is this, and it's a lofty goal. It's an extremely lofty goal, but... Um, since our God is the God that wrote Ephesians 3.20, which says that he can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think according to the power that is working within us, 68,000 people is not that lofty of a goal if we have God on our side. Our goal as a church is in some way, in some way, to make it so that every person that lives in the city of Rock Hill, all 68,000 of them, have a chance to hear the gospel. In some way, whether they come to our church, whether we go serve them in some way, whether we um, just talk to our neighbors and we don't serve them, we just have conversations. If we talk to people in our, in our in our workplace, it doesn't matter. Our goal is that every single person that we know that we can come into contact with and that we can begin creating patterns to be able to be around. We need to, as a church, own this accountability and own this responsibility of 68,000 people. That's our piece of the puzzle of the three million that need to hear. That is huge. That is lofty. lofty. But we have, Lord willing, hopefully a lot of years left in Remedy Church until God just ends it. Um, and we can do this. We can, we can absolutely do this if God is with us. Now, why are we doing this? Let me show you a verse in Acts. Um, Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. This is what it says. This is why I believe that this is our responsibility. Acts 1.8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You Jesus is talking to the disciples and telling them, this is what's going to happen. After I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And this is how the missions is going to work out amongst you. This is what he tells them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were at the time. So you will be witnesses in this city that you're in. The city that you're in is where you're going to take some accountability for. And then it says, and in all Judea and Samaria. So he starts moving out in that region a little bit. And then it says, and to the ends of the earth. So this is a good pattern for us to think of as a church that lives and is placed in the city of Rock Hill. We're going to, in our Jerusalem, our Rock Hill, start moving the gospel in here and then start moving it out into our region. You can, you can say South Carolina, you can say the United States, whatever, and then to the ends of the earth. That's, that's the way that we want to, as a church, start doing local and global missions. All right, so that's our goal, and that's why I think there's a biblical mandate that we should start um, in the city of Rock Hill, which we have, but we have to add this missions piece. And as we look at the text today in 1 Timothy, we'll see that God is desiring that um, his, his gospel be 
be proclaimed to all the nations. And um, we want to join in that because we believe as, as a church, as a church that God has started, that he has given us that responsibility that we would start doing that. Whichever way. Now, I'm not saying that we can make this major dent in the city. I'm not saying that we can make this major dent in the world. We're only a collection of a certain amount of people. But we can be, um, we can be responsible and we can be fulfilling our part in this. However that looks. If we're going to stay this little for the rest of our time, we can do our part well. And we can, we can start telling many, as many people as we want. Now, um, when we started Remedy, here's, here's a kind of a little understanding of where I am and how it's kind of looked for us. When we started Remedy, um, I honestly thought that this was going to happen. I honestly thought, and I don't know what I was thinking, <laughs> but I honestly thought that um, if we as a church are dedicated to expository preaching, which we are, which is basically just taking books of the Bible and preaching through them verse by verse and unpacking the scriptures to you, that I honestly, and I still believe this, that that's what the best thing that people need. That's, that is the best thing that I can do as a, as a pastor is teach you the scriptures more and less of what my opinion is or less of what my topical ideas on whatever are. Um, so I honestly believe that if we, um, as a church, are dedicated to expository preaching and um, we have a worship band that's extremely serious in focusing on the glory of Christ and not being silly, that um, people that are lost will be drawn towards this, that salvations will start springing up all around us and that God would use our dedication to expository preaching and our dedication to having serious worship and just grow our church massively. Um, not because I want our church to have some kind of big name in the city, but because I want God to use us to make his name big in the city. And I was thinking, that's what we need to do. That's what's lacking is expository preaching and serious focused worship. And I got to tell you, I was dead wrong. I, I don't think that that's how it works. Now, that's that's right. It's a piece of it, but that's not what's going to grow our church. Um, it's not as if a lost person is kind of walking around the city and they're going to bump into me. They're going to say, oh, OK, I'm lost. But but you preach the word. So since you preach the word and that's really important to me, I'm going to go ahead and come over to your church. Um, that's not how it's going to work. They're not walking around thinking, well, I'm only going to go to a church that preaches the word. Um, however, they will come, I believe. And we've seen this, that if we go um, and serve them, get involved in their life, find out what their needs are. And, and, and don't miss this, truly befriend them, not some kind of surfacey relationship where I'm going to feel good about myself after I leave because I've been nice to you um, and think that I've really done something. But actually come to them and truly befriend them. And then as we do that, we'll earn a right for them to see our, the pattern of our life because we're living out the gospel in front of them and they'll want to be attracted to Jesus First, whether it's remedy, I don't care, but they'll be attracted to Jesus and want to become um, a member of the kingdom of God by faith in Christ. And wherever they go to church is, is really non-consequential to me. But we, I, I think that that's the pattern. The expository preaching and the great worship band works for 1% of the country. The other 99% have to do it this way. So we have to kind of get our minds out of um, growing a church through Sunday morning services. We can't grow our church. And look, I'm not saying that we need to grow our church 
so that we can have this great name. When I say grow in our church, what I mean is people coming to know Jesus. And you, we, since we're in this church, this is the context that God has placed us. And we think the best place that they can come to know Jesus is the place that we are. So we want to invite people to where we are. And so when I say growing our church, I mean people coming to know Jesus and being followers of Jesus. If they stay here or not, I don't really care. Um, but we're not going to. We cannot bank people coming to know Jesus on our Sunday morning services. Just come with me and hear the guy talk and maybe you'll hear the gospel and maybe you'll get saved. That's not the way it works in postmodernism anymore. Um, we have to really get involved in people's life, which goes back to what I started with is um, I think we need a category shift in our minds that we can't just operate through life where I'm going to do something with someone and for someone if it's going to somehow help me in the process. Um, we have to just give ourselves away, whether it means that we're going to have any kind of moving forward in our lives or not, um, if it's going to serve us or not at all. So here's our goal. Um, we want to build the kingdom first before we build our church. But I want to put out a goal. I know I've put out the big goal of 68,000 people in the city of Rock Hill. But this is where I think if we're going to get down to real numbers, real thoughts, and what that means for us and how we can start trying to navigate that is this. We need to make a goal every Sunday that we would all bring um, and have in this room 30% of, this, of the people inside of this room every Sunday, 30% would be lost. Now, I'm not putting everything on Sunday morning experiences. I've said that. But in order for that to happen, you're going to have to go out and truly befriend them and do life with them and get involved in their life and serve them and help them and things like that. And I think that if we have a good balance, if, if you're doing that, then a good balance would be that 30% of our people here on Sunday mornings would be lost. Meaning they don't know Jesus, but they're certainly willing to come here because they know you, they're your friend, and they'll come and do things with you because they're your friend. Um, almost everybody will go to church with somebody that's their friend. So that's our, that's our goal, and we want to start moving towards that. Um, I don't think that we have that right now. I don't think that 30% of the people in here are lost. So that's the goal we want to start moving towards. Now, First Timothy. Um, First Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy. Um, and Timothy was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And when he wrote to Timothy as, as a pastor of the this, of this city, Ephesus, he was wanting to give them, him instructions. He was brand new to the pastorate. And Paul's wanting to give him instructions, um, advising him on how proper worship is supposed to look. What are some qualifications for elders and deacons? He wanted Timothy to confront false teaching in an accurate way, in a right way. He wanted Timothy also as a pastor to be thinking about personal holiness. So as we're going through this, um, you're going to you could be saying, well, I'm not a pastor. So how does this apply to me? Um, and what I want to want you to see is as we go through this, because this is written to a pastor does not mean it doesn't apply to you at all. Um, there's plenty applications for you, even though you're not a pastor, where you can see where he tells him to be holy. Well, just because he's a pastor doesn't mean he has to be holy. All Christians should be holy. Just because there's false teaching doesn't mean that's only the pastor's job to know about false teaching. All of us should be growing in our relationship with Christ and our knowledge of him so that we are um, able to confront false teaching and know what false teaching is as well. So we can see the applications. This is written to a pastor, but all of us can get things from it. All right. So, um, why we've titled this sermon, Four Specific Ways to Pray for Local and Global Missions, um, comes out of verse 2. Look what it says in verse 2. We're going to read it in just a second, but let's look at verse 2. It says, For kings and all who are in high positions, um, talking about what we need prayers for, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful 
and quiet life. Now, see where it says peaceful and quiet life right there. That's the, that's the emphasis that I want to pull from so that we can see this is why we're talking about this. Um, Paul is not saying that we can have a peaceful and quiet life, meaning that we can all have restful, leisure filled lives for the rest of our life so that never is there a time where um, we're going to be uh, challenged, where we all we're going to get to do is just kind of go to um, the mountains and the beach and just kind of lay out. That's not what he's saying. He doesn't mean peaceful and quiet life where you just kind of get to chill the rest of your life and do whatever you want. Um, if we put on our first century thinking caps and kind of think about what's going on in the first century, um, Christians were being killed. So in order for a Christian to be able to share the gospel with someone, they need to be alive. Not too many dead people can talk. And so what he's saying is in order for us to have a peaceful and quiet life means that we're not dying, which means if I'm alive, then I get to talk. If I get to talk, then I get to share the gospel with people. And so Paul is talking about missions here. He's saying that we need to, in verse one, have prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving for all people so that Christians can be alive. And if we're alive, then we can tell the gospel. So that's what we're talking about here is four specific ways to pray for local and global missions. Um, and we're not talking about when we say peaceful and quiet life that we just get to play. We're talking about that we get to breathe so that we can tell the gospel. So we're going to jump in here. I'm going to pray before we get rolling and then we'll we'll go in. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot on my heart and mind as we as we enter into looking at a set of verses that deals with. Um, local missions and global missions and what our responsibility is as a church. And so I pray, Lord, that you would give all here um, a sense of attentiveness. Lord, if they're tired because they stayed awake till 2 a.m., that you would give them um, an extra amount of of just life so that they're not tired, but they can hear from the Holy Spirit this morning. I pray for, for myself, Lord, that all the things that I say this morning would be helpful that they would be beneficial, that they would be Holy Spirit given. And anything that, that would not be helpful, you would keep me from those things. And I pray that in the end, Father, we would all leave with a real sense of responsibility and a real burden for missions, both lo- locally and internationally. And that we would say this day, today kind of marks um, the, the day in my life where I'm going to start being more serious about serving people and being on mission and instead of just kind of cruising through life and if something comes up then maybe i'll do it but but not really unless i really got to you know be really proactive so lord i pray that we would get a sense and a desire to be proactive in our lives to really come around what is your mission to see the gospel be proclaimed to everyone so Lord, i pray for help this morning And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at uh, the verses, and then we're going to be able to go through these. Um, It'll probably only be about another 10, 15 minutes, and then we'll be done. Um, It says, first of all, then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings and who are all in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people... And that word right there, all people, is just men in the Greek. Anthropos, men. So, I'm sorry, and also in verse 1 where he says, uh, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. That is as well, men. He's going to keep 
reiterating this word men may be made for all men or all people for kings. Verse two, and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who desires men or all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, um, Paul in verse two says that he wants people to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Um, The reason why is... um, so that they can live. Some of his first century contemporaries, um, the people that were alive at the same time as him, this is why Paul says, I want them to have a peaceful and quiet life. Stephen, in, in the book of Acts, was stoned, and some 2,000 other Christians suffered at the same time of, of Stephen's persecution. James was beheaded in 44 AD. Philip was crucified in 54 AD. Matthew was killed by a halberd, which is basically this long sword with this kind of axe on the, on the end of it, um, in 60 AD. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was beaten to death by a club after he was crucified and stoned. They crucified him and stoned him, and that didn't kill him, so then they just beat him to death with a club. Um, Matthias was stoned and then beheaded. Matthias was the, the disciple that was added after Judas was hanged himself. Andrew, which was Peter's brother, was crucified. Mark was beaten to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded in Rome. Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was crucified. Thomas was killed, ironically, by a spear. Luke was hanged. Simon was crucified in 74 AD. And John, the gospel writer, was cooked in boiling hot oil, but lived, he survived, and lived to an old age of of 110 AD. And lastly, Timothy was beaten severely and he died in Ephesus Ephesus, as he was a pastor. So out of all those, just those closest to Jesus, only one got to live to an old age. So if we think um, and kind of put on our, our, our thinking caps, when Paul says we need people to live a, first, a quiet and peaceful life, he's not saying so that, that all the disciples in us, when we turn 65, can go retire to our Jerusalem, Florida and, and hang out on the beach. He's saying that If we get killed, we can't talk. So when we're talking about praying here, we're asking God to keep people alive. And if we think that's just kind of the case back then, we're sadly mistaken. Listen to this quote um, from a man named Denton Lotz at a a Baptist general council uh, that was held in South Korea. It says 60,000 Christians, 60,000, roughly the entire population of this city every year are killed for their faith. So every year, this, this whole city would be killed for their faith. All over the world, that's happening. 60,000 people per year are killed for their faith. So it's not just something that's happening then. So when we pray for peaceful and quiet lives, we're not just praying it for first century, we're praying it for today as well. Maybe not here in Rock Hill, but we are praying it for those Christians that live in this world. Um, it says that, That is why as Baptists, and we're just talking about Baptists, need to be more and more concerned about religious freedom in the 21st century because of the clash of civilizations is more real than ever. So we're not going to be talking about how to pray this morning, but why. 
And this is why we're praying. In Matthew 28, it tells us this. This is right before Jesus um, ascends. He says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Then verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus wants all the Christians, or all, all the people all over the world to hear about him. And he says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. So Jesus, before he dies, tells them, I want you to tell all nations. And then in another place in Matthew 24, he tells us this. Um, speaking of the end, he says, and this gospel, this is Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel will be of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. That's the ethne. That's the word where we get our, that's the, um, the Greek word ethne, where we get ethnicity from. So we're not talking about nations as in countries. We're talking about inside of each country, every single ethnicity inside that country. And some of them have Millions. And then here's another one. That's why we have um, not millions, thousands. And so that's why we have 16,000 people groups. We don't just have we have 174 countries, but there's 16,000 people groups. And he's saying that this gospel must be preached to all the nations, all the ethne, all the people groups. And then the end will come, which was our desire as, as Christians. We want the end to come. So we want to carry this gospel to all the nations or all the ethne, all the people groups. Um, and so Paul is asking for prayers supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made. Now, why does he kind of use these, these um, what seems to be synonymous words? Why does he say it four times? Is he just, you know, is he like me? Is he just kind of redundant and has to say the same thing over and over? Or, since he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit, is a little bit different. I think it's a little bit different. Um, one commenter says that Paul um, appears to be joining together these terms for the same purpose in order to recommend more war- more warmly and to urge more strongly earnest and constant prayer. He is putting all the words that he can think out there so that he will um, invite us in and urge us on to be people of prayer to bring missions about. Um, so as we look at this, the first thing that we can get at is this. Um, Paul is asking people, for their needs to be met, that's supplication, that they'll pray for others on, their, uh, on their, their behalf, that's intercession, and that when God blesses us, that we'll return to him thanksgiving and gratitude for doing that. So we can see supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving. So here's the first thing. Here's point number one, um, that we must pray that the gospel that they hear is the true gospel. We see that in verse 1. Um, first of all, I urge you that supplications, prayers, and intercessions be made for all people. Now, that's the prayer piece, but why am I saying the true gospel? Because if you remember a few weeks ago, uh, whenever we were looking at chapter 1, verses 12 through 20, um, we talked about what is the four essentials in communicating the true gospel. So Paul, Paul had just gotten through telling us what the true, true gospel was in verses 12 through 20. And then he says, now we need to pray. So he's pointing that when we pray, we need to ask that the people we tell hear what is the true gospel. Now, you don't need to write this down. This is just kind of a restatement really fast of what the true gospel is. The true gospel is that there's a recognition of sin, that they understand that faith and love for Jesus comes for him. So it's all for his glory, that it's primarily about Christ's glory being put on display and not ourselves. And that the gospel teaches us that when we become Christians, we don't just pray a prayer so we don't go to hell. But there's an everyday fight now that must be in place in our lives in order to give evidence that we're truly Christians. That's the true gospel that we have to preach. And that's the true gospel that we have to pray for that people hear. We're not praying for um, 
the prosperity gospel where people just think that uh, Jesus just wants me to be rich or the social gospel, which is um, we just want people to think that the gospel is just being nice to people and looking for social justice and serving the poor. We're not saying that it's liberation theology where the gospel is that um, if you're a minority or if you're oppressed, Jesus just wants you to be free here on earth. That He might not want you to be free. He might want you to die like the rest of his disciples. Some people preach that type of gospel. They preach prosperity or social or um, liberation theology. Or some people preach um, just basically easy believism, which is just, you know, repeat after me. Magical. Or some people just say works righteousness gospel, where they just say, as long as you're a good person, the good things you do outweigh the bad things you do. We don't want any of those faults from the pit of hell gospels to be preached. We want the true gospel, which is about Jesus and his glory and him coming for us and dying for us. And that all the wrath that should be put on us is not. I heard somebody say this past week. I wonder how many times during the week we stop and think, <laughs> you know, I should be in hell right now. I should be in hell right now, but I'm not. As soon as I sinned, I deserve hell, but I'm not. That's the true gospel that we're thinking that Jesus Christ took on all the wrath of God for us our, on our behalf. And we're praying that the true gospel is being proclaimed. Now, verse 2 says that we're going to pray for kings and all who are in high, in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, he's saying that he wants these Christians to have a, a, a peaceful life, a quiet life. But we know that that doesn't mean ease. We know that means living. But how, does that, how is that going to be accomplished? He tells us that in the very first part of, of verse 2. The way that we're going to have a peaceful and quiet life is for, right here, verse 2, for kings and all in high positions. For those who are kings and those who are in high positions to um, grant to Christians a life where they're not persecuted. So here's the second thing. We're going we're gonna to pray for those who are in high positions, which are presidents, leaders, etc., that the gospel will be proclaimed safely in these countries. So we're going to pray that these, these leaders don't hate Christians or hate the gospel so much that they're going to kill every Christian so that those Christians will be dead and not be able to share the gospel. That's the second piece that we're going to pray for, um, which we'll do this morning. This morning when we pair off, we're, we're going to pray for it, and we'll have more next week. There's two more next week. But this morning when we pair off, we're going to pray that they'll hear the true gospel, and we're going to pray that the leaders of these nations will will be the kind of kings where we know the Lord tells us that um, the king's hearts are like streams of water and that God directs their affections and God directs what's going to happen. So we're going to pray that God would do that. So this means that people like Barack Obama or Nicolas Sarkozy, um, the leader in France, or Vladimir Putin, the the leader of Russia, or even Osama bin Laden, um, and all the people that, that live in this world that are over countries, that God will direct their hearts so that the gospel um, will be able to come into their, into their nations. Because in some nations, these leaders do not want the gospel. So we're going to pray for these people in high places. We have to, because of this, listen to this, this is Romans chapter 13. We have to be subject to our governor authorities. 
We know that God directs their hearts, but we can't rebel against our government. What we can do is pray for them that God would change their hearts and so that that um, the gospel will be able to go in there. This is what Romans 13 says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Can you understand what that means? Every single leader has been instituted by God. Osama bin Laden was given reign in Afghanistan for a certain time. Saddam Hussein, for a while, was given reign by God in Iraq. Our president now is given reign by God in America. And whether you agree with their politics, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not asking you to agree with their politics if you're going to pray for them. I'm asking you to be obedient to God and pray for them. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So regardless of your politics, you have to pray for your leaders. Every leader in every country. And we have to do this. So that the gospel will be able to go forward in these countries. So we're not just praying for a peaceful and quiet life. It means that we're not just going to pray for play and entertainment. Paul's describing this so that Christians will be able to actually share the gospel. New Testament commentary says this. Paul certainly does not mean to encourage a life of ease when he says peaceful and quiet. So peaceful and quiet means that we are free from disturbances such as wars and persecutions. If we're free from persecution and free from wars, this will facilitate the spread of the gospel of salvation in the glory to, I'm sorry, the spread of the gospel of salvation in Christ to the glory of God. So it absolutely pleases God for, for us to pray. Let me, let me read a, uh, I'm going to close with this. And then after this, um, we're going to watch a video um, that's going to try to um, help us see the need for, for international missions to happen. Um, both through taking the gospel to them as well as serving and meeting their needs. And as we serve and meet their needs, that as their um, immediate needs are met, their physical needs, that we have the right to to tell them of their greatest need, which is Jesus. So we're going to watch that video. And after the video, I'm going to come back up and we'll facilitate our prayer time. But before we go into this video, I want you to hear um, a little bit of a book called, this is called Let the Nations Be Glad. And this is um, a story about a man named John Elliot, not Jim Elliot, John Elliot. It says one of the hope filled Puritans that crossed the Atlantic in 1631 was John Elliot. He was 27 years old and a year later became the pastor of a new church in Massachusetts. Now, this is 1631. All right. Not 2031. This is 1631. So it's much different then. But something happened that made him much more than a pastor. According to Cotton Mather, there were 20 tribes of Indians in that vicinity. John Elliot could not avoid the practical implications of his theology. Listen to this. This is what the Bible teaches. That if the infallibility, infallible scriptures promise that all nations will one day bow down to Christ. We just read that in Matthew 24, 14. The gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end will come. If the scriptures promise that one day um, people... From all nations will one day bow down to Christ. And if Christ is sovereign and able by his spirit through prayer to subdue all in opposition to his promised reign, then there's a good hope that a person who goes as as an ambassador of Christ to one of these nations will be the chosen instrument of God 
to open the eyes of the blind and set up an outpost of the kingdom of Christ. He believed that if he did this, he could go, that God could use him to open the eyes of these Indians and that they would come to know Christ. And it says, and so when he was slightly over 40 years old, not 20, but over 40 years old, Elliot set himself to begin the study of the language of Algonquin. At 40 years old, he started learning a new language. He deciphered the vocabulary and grammar and syntax and eventually translated the entire Bible as well as other books that he valued like Richard Baxter's Call to the Unconverted. This man at 40 learned a language, learned the syntax, and then translated the entire Bible and other books to an entire people group so that they could have the Bible in their language. At 40... By the time Elliot was 84 years old, there were numerous Indian churches, some with their own Indian pastors. This is an amazing story of a man who said prayers and pains through faith in Jesus Christ will do anything. We believe that this morning, that prayers and pains through Jesus Christ will do anything. So we're wanting to accomplish anything that God wills that he would bring about. And so the reason I tell this story is to highlight the tremendous importance of solid biblical hope on the basis of which we pray in the cause of world missions. God has promised and God is sovereign when he says all the nations will come forward and bow down, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name in, in Psalm 86, 9. This is what gripped this Puritan mind, John Eliot, and eventually gave birth to what is known as the modern missionary movement in 1793, which is William Carey. And that kept going. And it says... And then it goes on to say, in which these missionaries gave their lives to reach the unreached peoples of the world. The modern missionary movement did not arise from a theological vacuum. It grew out of a great Reformation tradition that put the sovereignty of God square in the center of human life. In the warfare of world missions, God bears his arm and triumphs for his own glory. So we believe that the scriptures are true, that all people from all nations will come to know him and that we need to um, do two things. We need to pray that these things would start happening, pray that these things would start um, really awakening our affections and our desires in our heart, that we would begin to care about it and begin to pray first. And second thing is that when that happens, that we would actually start doing something about it. That's what we're going to pray for this morning. That's what I'm hoping will begin to happen in our lives. Because countless amounts of people in this world and even in this city are perishing. And I think we need to be motivated. We're going to watch a video and then we'll come back in just a minute and I'll facilitate our prayer. The design of of this video is not to evoke emotion. It's to evoke action. I mean, I can give you statistics, but until you see, because we're, we're just so blind because we have such ease, I don't think that we'll act. I, I don't want you to be emotional. I want you to act. And the way we're going to start that this morning is through prayer. That's what we're going to do is we're going to pray that God would bring these things about, these two things we talked about, and that we would begin to own this as Christians. I want to read one line from this book and then we'll um, just on your own break off into groups of two or three. Um, Prayer time will last somewhere in the neighborhood of seven to ten minutes and then Cameron will uh, 
Cameron will start worship. And if you're still praying, continue to pray. Otherwise, just stand and join and sing with us as we worship. But let me read this to you. And just notice in the video that there was two pieces. Immediately we started with the gospel going out and people getting saved. That's the, that's the, that's the biggest thing that's needed. Then it, there was lists of physical needs, which we can meet. But the gospel going out is so important. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. I just talked about missions the whole time, but then I just told you missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. There's people who aren't worshipers, so we go and give them the gospel so that they'll become worshipers. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Therefore, worship is the fuel and goal in missions. So as we do missions, it's because we want people to become worshipers of Jesus. So I'm going to pray and then just on your own, split off and, and spend some time in prayer regarding this piece this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my friends here. And God, I pray that we would be the kind of church that takes your mission seriously. Lord, that we would never be satisfied with just a relationship with Jesus that just seeks holiness and just wants to be deep in your scriptures, but also that wants to be on mission and serve. That we wouldn't just do the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength, but that we would do the second commandment, which is love your neighbor as yourself. And it starts this morning with us in our hearts. God, I pray. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for those here that you would begin this deep desire within us to want to be on mission. That you would begin with our affections and move those into action. That we wouldn't just hear these things and see these things that move us, but that we would, we would do something. Be with us now as we pray. It's in Jesus' name.